Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. We have all been fed the myth that we can expect a few big upheavals and a single midlife crisis in life. But the reality, as we all know too well, is that these transitions are far more frequent than that and do not adhere to the timing that culture typically suggests. Navigating life's big changes and pivots is often incredibly difficult. We are, in many ways, creatures of habit and push back against the idea of a shift in our norms, especially if that shift is thrust upon us or something that we didn't expect. Bruce Feiler author of Life is in the Transitions, spent a year exploring how people move through these moments to uncover what makes an overhaul more doable. What he found is we are capable of mastering big change at any age. And with the right tools, we can navigate these transitions with meaning, purpose, and skill, and often to wonderfully unpredictable results on the other side. They can be hard, but they can ultimately be some of life's most worthwhile adventures. In our conversation today, we talk about his different strategies for not only surviving a massive life change, but having it bring about great growth and opportunity too. I thought his tips and tools were prescient and grounding. I hope you do as well. Turns out that these transitions have a kind of shape to them. So there's three phases. There's what I call the long goodbye, where you say goodbye to the life that's not coming back. There's the messy middle when you shed certain habits and create new ones and then the new beginning where you unveil your new self. Let's get to my chat. Congrats on your book, which is obviously incredibly well-primed for this time. I did have to laugh near the end where you talk about how, I think it was a sociologist, Glenn Elder, 
and he was talking about the long-term impact of collective events. And you say, my data suggests these types of shared events may no longer hold similar sway over people's lives. It could be there are fewer of these events or that people prefer to see their lives as unique and not subject to the same influences as everyone else. And that you talked about 9-11 being a significant player, but wow, we're all in a massive transition. So thankfully we have your book to help us get through it. First of all, can I just say, <laughs> I'm going to begin by saying it's delightful to have to be with you and thank you for <laughs> inviting me. And in this case, you pick the line that no one else I've talked to has pointed to that I think is the line that I can't get out of my head. And the point is exactly what you say, right? Which is I write in this book about life quakes, these moments, right, that are huge wrenching changes in our lives that are higher on the Richter scale of consequences and have aftershocks that last for years. And I've been working on this book for five years and lo and behold, it arrives at this moment when the entire planet is going through a life quake. And that's real for almost everybody listening to us and almost everybody having this now, this is the first time in their lives that we've all had this kind of shared experience where we're all going through this together. But let me say this at least, because I think it's actually deceptive, I've decided. Mm. Because on the one hand, we're going through this life quake together. On the other hand, a kind of a signature idea of this book is that the life quake that you go through can be voluntary or involuntary, can be personal or collective, but the life transition that comes out of it must be voluntary. Like you have to choose yeah. to lean in and take the steps to deal with whatever life transition you need to get through. So what I mean by saying that it's deceptive is that we're going through this experience together but the life transition, the way it manifests itself in each of our lives is going to be different. Totally. So you may need a work change and you may need a relationship change and you may choose to get sober and you may move. So we're all going to have a different way that it expresses itself, even though it's a shared experience. Yeah. But it's wild how it's such a restart button for everyone and forcing everyone to reexamine their lives, either, as you said, voluntarily or involuntarily. But I loved your book because at its core... It debunks all of these myths that we've collectively been raised on, that life is linear, that mm -hmm. we can expect upheaval in midlife. And as you point out, and it's certainly been my own personal experience, no, as an adult, you are going to have dozens of disruptions of a variety of types, and that pretty much everyone is somehow going through a disruption or recovering from a disruption. And that is life. Like that's the point and or maybe not the point, but that's the reality of our existence. And to pretend like it's supposed to be anything else is just setting yourself up for the wrong story. That's beautifully put. And I appreciate the kind words about this book and Though I didn't set out when I set out to collect these stories of Americans in all ages and all walks of life, all 50 states, I what inspired me to do this is that I went through a life quake like this. I just got walloped by life. As, and I got cancer as a new dad at 43. That's what inspired me to ask a group of friends to create the Council of Dads that led to the NBC series. I almost, spent, well, almost went bankrupt. And then my dad who has Parkinson's, tried to take his own life. And I, this was just a scary time and it felt like life was coming at me from all directions and I didn't know what to do. I started sending my dad questions every, mon every Monday morning. Tell me about the house you grew up with, or the toys you played with, how'd you join the Navy and meet mom? And 
this is the only thing that kind of gave my dad hope at this time. And I thought, and when I started telling other people about this experience, people said exactly what you just said, Elise, right? Which is everybody had an experience like this, right? My wife went into the hospital, had a headache and died. My daughter tried to take her own life. My boss is a crook. My sister's been diagnosed with stage four cancer. And what everybody was saying was like the life I'm living is not the life I expected. I'm living life out of order. And I would say, though, though this is pretty ungendered, I want to say that in particular women feel this way because of the straight linear path may not be there with career. They have children. They think they're going to go back to work. Suddenly they want to stay. They need to go back to work. Like then they want to get back in the career track and it's not there for them. Like the idea of living life out of order, like the life I'm living is not the life I expected, is a plight that so many of us feel. And it turns out we are feeling uncomfortable not because what we're doing is out of the normal or out of the ordinary or unexpected. It's that the myth that we were told that life was going to be linear. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. And that turns out to be a complete historical anomaly. Like in the ancient world, they thought life was a cycle, right? To every season, turn, turn, turn. In the Middle Ages, they thought you peaked at Middle Age and then you went down. But it's only since the birth of psychology 100 years ago that we were told that childhood development happens in a linear construct, right? Freud has these ideas. Erickson with the eight stages of moral development, the five stages of grief, the hero's journey. These are all linear constructs. And this reaches its peak with Gail Sheehy in the 70s, writing Passages, a book that all of our moms read. And it said everyone does the same thing in 20s and everyone does the same thing in their 30s. And everyone then has a quote unquote midlife crisis that must start at 39 and must end by 44. That's all bunk. But we all internalized it. The idea that big changes happen on birthdays that end in zero. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that these changes happen all across our lives. Some people are born into a life quake. Some people lose a parent when they're a teenager. Some people find what they want to do in their 20s, but some people not till their 30s. Some people have injuries. They lose parents. They change careers. They have a child with special needs. These things happen across our lives. And you're not living life out of order everybody's living life out of order. And once I stumbled into this, I, I feel like one day I pulled a book off a shelf and ended, and the whole bookcase moved, that fantasy we have in those movies. And yeah. I'm in a different room and it was like, wow, we're told our lives are going to take a certain shape and that turns out to be completely distracting. And let me see if I can free people of it, of this notion. And then what I found is that we go through a lot of transitions in our lives, all through our lives, and then let me figure out if there's any patterns and themes I can identify from these people that will help us all go through these transitions more effectively. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to Airbnb. 
as you say, there, I think there are 52 types of transitions from voluntary to, to involuntary, and they often come as dominoes. They come often really quickly change begets change. And there's no sort of karmic debt to be repaid. I remember my brother, Ben, was married. He's now a widow. And several years ago, I guess maybe five years ago, my brother was stabbed in Riverside Park when he was walking his dog. There was a a man who found a pair of gardening shears. He was homeless. I think he was having a psychotic break. And he stabbed a series of people, including my brother, who's fine now. He lost his spleen. But it was so shocking. And I remember... I went to New York. I had a young, my oldest was a baby to be with my brother and Peter, his husband, and my parents. And we were like, wow, it was traumatizing. My brother recovered, but we were like, wow, you're good. And then five years later, my brother's husband died in his sleep at the age of 39. But that for me, I was like, oh, this isn't your one and done. Oh, this isn't. Or like Nora McInerney, who was on the podcast recently who has a podcast called Terrible Things for Asking is a perfect example of this. She lost her husband to cancer. Yeah, she lost a baby and she lost her father to cancer all within the span of six weeks. And these stories, as you say, are not abnormal. Not to say that everyone needs to go through life preparing for the roof to cave in, but it does require a certain adaptability Mm -hmm. and resilience and understanding that like, that's part of life too. First of all, thank you for sharing those beautiful and painful stories. And I think that even that act of sharing is helping normalize this idea of nonlinearity. Because what happens when you have an experience like you've just articulated, am I getting cancer as a 43-year-old new dad, Nora McInerney, and everybody listening to us in one way or another, is that you feel lonely, you feel scared. I looked into the eyes of 225 people who were sharing their life story. These are people who lost homes, lost limbs, changed careers, changed religions, got sober, got out of bad marriages, two-time cancer survivor who climbed Mount Everest, a army sergeant who had his face shot off by the Taliban, people who went through incredible changes. And I want to say that some of these are involuntary and painful, but some of them are voluntary. People choose to leave a bad marriage, or they confront an addiction and get sober, or they decide to move or start a new venture. So some of these are involuntary and some of these are voluntary, but the act of going through them makes us feel lonely and isolated and scared. And so I looked into the eyes of 225 people and I said, what was the biggest emotion that you Mm -hmm. struggled with at a time like this? The number one answer, fear. Am I going to get through this? Am I going to survive? Can I pay the bills? How will I do it? The number two answer, sadness. I like that old life. I like that old job. I liked my husband sleeping next to me in the bed, not when he dies uh, in, in his sleep. I liked my spleen. Like people were sad and you have to mourn the past. But the third was interesting and unexpected for me, Elise, and it was shame. Yeah. I, I'm ashamed that I lost that job in the pandemic. I'm ashamed that I have a child with an addiction. I'm ashamed uh, that I I did something wrong and got into an accident and, and can't walk straight anymore. And what was interesting about this process for me was when you go through an experience like this, you feel like you're the only one. But when you look at enough of them, as I did and have done, certain patterns begin to appear. And so, for example, it turns out that these transitions have a kind of shape to them. 
So there's three phases. There's what I call the long goodbye, where you say goodbye to the life that's not coming back. There's the messy middle when you shed certain habits and create new ones. And then the new beginning where you unveil your new self. And even the way we've talked about transitions for the last century, we were told, you have to do this in order. They like in transition, like you're in one room and you leave the room and you walked down the hallway and you went to a new room. Even that's misleading because it turns out everybody is good at one phase, their transition superpower, and also gets stuck in another phase, their transition kryptonite. So one thing I try to do in the book and life is in the transitions is say, let's help you figure out which of these phases you're good at. And let's start there. Like maybe Mm -hmm. some people are bad at saying goodbye, but some people are good. And some people are bad at the messy middle, but some people thrive there, make lists and, and adjust. So I try to say, even though you may feel like you're the only one who's ever gone through this by showing you what everyone else is doing, I'm trying to help people get the tools to get through this time more effectively. Yeah. And I know like in the set, you list sort of seven tools and the first one is identifying your emotions. And I would just, I just want to say how powerful it is that the, that people are recognizing sadness, fear, and shame because one of my wisest friends, who's a psychiatrist named Will Sue, he always talks about how anger is secondary or reactionary to sadness, fear, and shame. And because anger feels strong, and like we can do something while the others feel weak and helpless. But until you you have to get past the anger. And I think we all know that the people who are like, you know, pounding their chests and putting their fists through walls, they're so angry at how this could have happened to them. But you have to get beneath that reaction to understand what it is you're feeling, which is likely sadness, fear or shame. And then as you grapple with that, I think that's the the root of healing or adjusting or accommodating. But it's just, it's interesting to me that you landed at the exact same place. And I will say that's why the first of these tools of how to navigate these transitions is to identify that emotion, is to accept it in yourself so that you get it out on the table because you have the emotion. And the question is, are you going to take the time to actually identify it and therefore begin to tame it? But how do you move behind it? So I asked everybody, how did you get through this emotion that you're struggling with? And it was interesting. Some people said they write it down. I talked mm-hmm. to a woman, Gina Zach, who left a big corporation to move to Maine and start a lifestyle business where she helped people manage their second homes. And she wrote down her feelings by the side of her bed so that every morning she'd get up and see them and that would help her to manage them. Some people do what I do, which is buckle down, like what I say to myself sometimes when I get into one of these states is, is stop whining and go back to work. So I'm like a work your way through kind of person. But here's what surprised me. 80%, 8-0 of people said that they used rituals to tame and contain their emotions. So they sing or they dance or they have a memorial service or they bury something in the backyard or they hang up a flag. I talked to a woman named Lisa Ray Rosenberg in Southern California who had an awful year. She was a bone marrow donor to her brother. She had a big fight and falling out with her mother. And she went on 52 first dates. She actually made a spreadsheet of everything that she wore on the first date because she only went on seven second dates. And she wanted to make sure she didn't wear on the second date (laughs) what she had worn on the first date. And she was like, this just isn't working. What was my biggest fear? Heights. And so she jumps out of an airplane. And a year later, she was married with a child. And so what these rituals do, I talked to a man, Fred Schlomer, a psychologist in Kansas, who was in a loveless marriage, left his wife, and then came out as gay. He went to a sweat lodge to literally bits out his his past he wanted to get beyond. So what these rituals do 
is help us say to ourselves and those around me, I'm going through a difficult time. It's painful to go away from the past, but I'm going to move beyond the past. And I think this is particularly important during the pandemic because for the first few months of the pandemic, I think we all believed we're going to go back, mm-hmm. right? We're going to stay home for a few weeks and it's going to go away. We're not going back. We may go, some of us may go back, we may go sideways forward, a different place. I think the saying goodbye, the long goodbye of the three phases is the one that's tripping a lot of us up uh, in the pandemic because it's painful to say we're not going to have that life again, but it's important that we put it behind us so that we're open to the change and to the possibility of growth and renewal that come as you go deeper into the life transition. Yeah. And I thought on that note, in the concept of of meaning making from writing things down and and releasing that way, that this is, if you don't mind, if I read you a paragraph from your book, it's people who write about their most stressful life experiences, develop greater insight into their emotions, can express themselves more fully, even show evidence of a strengthened immune system. People who've been laid off from their jobs, who write about their feelings, not only cope with their resulting marital, medical, and money woes more easily, they also get hired more quickly. Within three months, 27% of free writers, as Penna Baker calls them, landed new jobs, compared with 5% in the control group. By seven months, 57% of those who wrote about their layoffs had jobs, three times the control. So in the context of the pandemic, where obviously job loss is significant, I thought that was such an amazing statistic of taking control of your narrative, but also it must be, as you were saying, some sort of closure, some sort of openness, some sort of wrestling that allows people to move forward and then ideally into new opportunities. And I will confession, I've not told this story publicly before, but when the pandemic first hit, I am married to a woman named Linda Rotenberg who helps entrepreneurs around the world and is not a naturally expressive person. I'm the expressive one in this marriage. You know, we're sort of flipped the gender script a little bit. And I have 15-year-old identical twin daughters, Eden for the Garden of Eden and Tybee for a beach in Georgia where I grew up. And I announced to some fanfare and not exactly a warm embrace that we would be journaling. I said, knowing this research, we're going to write down our feeling. No, dad, we're not going to do this. What are you talking about? We're not writers. You're Sorry, we're going to do this. Because it turns out to be incredibly powerful. Because at the beginning, and you mentioned James Pennebaker at the University of Texas at Austin, that with the, you, if you just write unencumbered for 20 minutes a day for three days, it's very powerful. Because in the beginning, you may write small, or my, my daughters were like, we're just going to write about how much we hate writing, Dad. We're going to show you. <laughs> I'm like, I don't care. You can write what you want to write, but we're going to write. Because you might start saying, what a stupid thing to do. And then the next day, you say, what a stupid thing to do, but today I did this. You begin to have some distance, and you begin to make some sense, and you begin to reconstruct your story. Because that's what this is. What a life quake is, um, it's difficult. It's painful. It's an opportunity. It can be a period of growth. It can be. It's going to be a slog, but it can be productive. But what it is fundamentally is a break in the normal. Yeah. And what that break in the normal does is it creates what I call a meaning vacuum, where suddenly the normal balance of power of what gives us meaning. I have these ABCs of meaning. The A is agency. That's doing and making, creating your kind of day to day work life. What you do. The B in the ABCs is belonging, your relationships, friends, family, colleagues, neighbors. And the C is a cause. That's something higher than yourself, right? 
a purpose, something you give back, a community, whatever it might be. And we all have this kind of balance of power and these ABCs of meaning. But in a life quake, it's thrown off balance. And that's what we're all in. Everybody listening to us either lay awake last night, worrying, or maybe got up this morning with a cup of coffee. Or maybe if you're not worrying, maybe you're living with someone who's worrying. Do I have a job? I have a job. Is it the job I want to have? Do I need to quit my job to take care of my children? Do I need to rejigger the work-life balance and my family of who does what? Do I want to move? This is what it means. And we are all struggling with something. And what this calls us to do is to reimagine our lives and to remake them. And one of the ways we do that is creativity. And so we were talking earlier about mm-hmm. the kind of the long goodbye, where you're saying goodbye to the old life. And that's followed in this toolkit and roadmap that I lay out in Life is in the Transitions by shedding. You shed certain habits or expectations or mindsets. And then people turn, maybe I should have expected this, I didn't see it coming, to incredible creativity. They sing, they dance. I talked to a woman, Gayla Pascal, who was caught up in a faculty scandal at Emory. She started to paint birdhouses and then go sell them at art fairs. I talked to a woman, Helen Kim, a retired chemistry professor in Alabama who got stomach cancer. She was the caretaker for her husband. And when she got sick, he was like, I don't want to take care of you. And she's, I'm out of here. So she leaves a marriage, leaves a job. She says, you know what? I always wanted to be a ballerina. So she starts taking adult ballet classes. I talked to a guy, Zach Herrick, kind of wanders through his life, ends up in the military, goes to Afghanistan. He's an army sergeant. He gets his face shot off by the Taliban. He has 31 surgeries from the tip of his nose to the tip of his chin, including having his tongue sewn back on. He's on the brink of suicide multiple times. And his mom moves to be nearby him when he's rehabilitating. He says, you know what? You should learn to cook. You can't eat normal food anymore. So he learns to cook. He says, I learned to bake salmon. Like the girls love it when I go on dates with them. <laughs> okay, he learns to rewrite poetry and then he starts to paint. He says, I'm splattering paint. You know that guy, Jackson Pollock? Like him. I'm like, wait a minute. Whoa, if I told your football playing self in Kansas when you were in high school that you were going to be cooking and writing poetry and painting, what would you have thought? I would have thought it was stupid, he says. But he said, I used to get out my aggression by splattering the enemy with bullets. And now I get out my aggression by splattering the canvas with paint. I mean, creativity. And a lot of people, like the creativity of choice is to, so they do this expressive writing, they write uh, poetry, they journal, even people who aren't naturally drawn to quote unquote creativity. And what's this about? They create themselves anew. And by the way, just one more pandemic reference. What was the cliche of all cliches that everybody did when the pandemic first hit? Sourdough. Yep. (laughs) People, but what is that act? It's your hands. It's getting in. It's taking out your aggression (laughs) against the dough. And it's baking and making something and feel, you know what? In this world, it feels like I have nothing, that I have no control. I do have agency. I can make the world a better place and I can make myself um, a better person. That's a life Yeah. And as you write, I loved this section where you write long before there was chaos in science, there was chaos in religion and sort of the essential nature of everything going to chaos before creation can happen. It's so scary, of course, but sometimes we're forced into that. That's what life is partially about, is the minute you feel like you have control, the universe is, no, you don't. Start over. And that sort of resilience or ability to pull yourself together and then make something new is what it means to be human. 
And so I think part of what a big part of what you're arguing is let's get comfortable with the fact that's required so that we can become really good at it and so, go. Yeah, go ahead. I am arguing that, but it's less that I'm arguing it. If it is that I found it in talking to people, I didn't yeah. know what I was looking for. And I sat across from people and everybody had these kinds of periods, three, four, five times in their lives. We have these life quakes and they take four, five, six years. And if you do the math, Elise, three, four, five life quakes, three, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives. We're in transition. You or someone is going through one now. And it's interesting now this book has been making its way into the world. Like the biggest, I've written six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. I've never had a launch like this. Like this book is eerily timely, it turns out, and like viscerally connecting to people. And I think a lot of the audience is people going through a life transition, but it's turning out that an even bigger part of the audience is people who are co-piloting somebody else, a spouse, a neighbor, a friend, a sibling, a child is going through one and people just want to help and they want something to say. And one of the things that you can say is that there are these phases. There's the long goodbye, but the second one, is the messy middle. And that messy middle is messy. That's why I called it the messy middle, because it mm -hmm. involves shedding things and creating things, and it's not linear, and it's going to be two steps forward and 11 steps back, and then six steps forward, and then sideways for a while, and then staying in place, and then moving forward. And lo and behold, if you look at the great stories, all of the scriptural traditions, these stories, the biblical story that's lasted 3,500 years, Abraham going forth from his family's house. I wrote Walking the Bible and Abraham. These are stories that I've spent many years marinated in. The Israelites going off into the wilderness, Jesus going off into the desert, the Buddha going off and sitting under a tree, the Hindus going off into the forest dwelling, Odysseus, Orpheus, Hercules, every one of the great stories has somebody going off into a period where they are disconnected, where they are frightened, where they are alone, where they are lonely, these stories have survived because they get at something real, which is it's not just that life is, begins in chaos and then we create it, which is what the beginning of the story is, but it's at various times in our lives we have to go back to that chaos. We have to touch back to that period of pain and confusion and fear, and not so that we feel afraid, but so that we rethink what's important to us, make sure we have the balance, we process the fear and sadness and shame, and then we begin to rewrite our story at a new chapter that says, I went through a difficult time and I found something constructive out of it. And that allows us to then go in to the next phase. Because as long as we got to go through so many of these periods, we shouldn't look at them as ones we just have to grit and grind our way through. Let's find something meaningful and valuable in them. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Toomey has a soft side. Discover their new Acer bag collection in its pillowy pleats, satin finish, and crescent shape. Acer is the bag to carry for your nine to five and the five to nine plans that follow. Versatility, after all, is Toomey's signature. Shop the full Acer collection on Toomey.com or at a Toomey store near you. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. It's interesting too how these transitions so often, obviously many times there are multiple people involved, but that it is a solo endeavor, which I think is so hard. I mean, I'm a codependent person and 
I'm a fixer and that makes me feel like I have power and control in situations. And when you're watching, when you're adjacent to someone, you love watching them try to navigate any of these transitions. What is the most helpful or right role? I know you're not a psychologist, but in what you've what you've observed, how often does it require help or intervention? Or is it really just when the help goes away and you yourself have to figure it out? That's where the owning the story and the power comes from. So you mentioned, Elise, that there that I have these three phases of life transitions that I teased out. Um, within that, I have these seven tools, things that we can do. Most of us do some of them naturally, but none of us does all of them, and we all want to get better. So everybody can learn something and wants to get better at these life transitions because even though this is urgent right now, this has been an out-of-favor concept. This is the first big book about life transitions in 40 years. So the tools, most of them align with one of the phases, right? So accept and ritualize and market, that's associated with a long goodbye. Shedding and creating, that's associated with the messy middle. Unveiling your new self and writing your new story, that's more or less associated with the new beginning. But one of the seven, share it, turns out to float. It can happen anytime. Some people need it only once and some people need it every day. But it turns out, so I looked all these people in the eye, Elise, and I said, what was piece of advice or counsel that a friend, a loved one, or mentor gave you that was helpful in your life transition. And I learned something interesting, which is that people, everybody likes having someone they can share with, but people like different kinds of responses. So, And I end up coding for this. And so some people like what I call comforters. That was the most popular. I love you, Elise. You're, I believe in you. You're going to get through it. But some people like nudgers. I love you, Elise, but you know, maybe you should get off the sofa. Like maybe you should go to AA or maybe you should go to match.com and start dating or maybe you should go to LinkedIn and start looking for a job. Some people, and this I confess may be me, some people like slappers. I love you, Elise, but get over yourself. Really, I'm tired of listening to you whine. Go do something. Like stop complaining and get back to work. And it was interesting. And so people, and so what you respond to may not be what somebody else responds to. So one thing that I feel is something I can share here is that it's almost like what kind, you can ask the person what kind of advice they would respond to. I have identical 15-year-olds and they're high schoolers now. And dad's a writer, which is both helpful and complicated if you're writing a paper for school. Now they don't show me their papers because they don't want my feedback. But when they were a little bit younger, they would show me their papers. And I realized it was hard for me. And so I used to say to them, what would you like? Would you like me to tell you how wonderful it is? Or would you like me to tell you how to make it better? <laughs> okay. So in this construct, <laughs> tell you how wonderful it is as a comforter and tell you how to make it better could be a nudger or depending on how I deliver the message, could be a slapper. And we eventually settled on what would be the right answer for us, uh, for them, for me, which was, both. <laughs> I want you to tell me how good it is and then tell me how to make it better. And I was okay, I'm like, wow, I learned from that. Because my instinct might be, this is what you need to fix. But I probably wouldn't have spent enough time saying what I liked. And frankly, when I show a piece of writing to somebody, and I've been a professional writer for 31 years, <laughs> I actually like my brother, who's my first reader, along with my wife. He and my, my wife does it too. They make check marks on what works. I've actually never shared this publicly. So they make check marks and then they make critical comments. The first time I look through it, I look for the check marks mm. because I look for, 
is it working in enough places, right? Am I hitting the beats I want to hit? And then once I've established that it's going to work, then I can take withering criticism. It's true. I'm the same. So which one do you like? Do you like comforters, nudgers, or slappers? I like slappers because I don't typically believe, like I like the hard stuff, but I also, Mm -hmm. it needs to be same as you. I just finished a book proposal of my own and it's like, I did the same thing. I looked through all the check marks from my agent and then she like grinded me hard, many, many rounds of edits, but I needed the affirmation first, but I also wouldn't have believed her if she hadn't put me through the paces. So it's that, I agree with you. It's that combo of this is, there's something significant here and it needs work. That's what's believable to me. (laughs) I think that's, I appreciate you're saying that. And again, I tease these things out. I feel like I'm the messenger here. These are not my ideas. These are ideas that I helped pull out of all these conversations. And that gives us back to what we were talking about, which is if you use my frame here, and the, the math and the data clearly show this, or you or someone you're living with is going through a life transition now. And because we're now in this collective involuntary life quake of this moment that's going to last several years where we all make sense of the pandemic and how we're going to live, it could be that we're on different stages of these transitions at the same time. And I think that people, it's very helpful to understand that this is a common thing that people go through. The number one thing people have been writing to me who have been reading Life is in the Transitions is, I feel relieved Mm. that I'm not the only one going through this. In fact, there are things that I can do to make it go better for me or tips I can give someone who's going through one. There's a lot of people out there who are going through worse. Yeah. (laughs) If you're the people in this book, there are people in cults, people in hate groups, people who were, when people read these stories in this book, it makes them grateful that they have not had some of the miseries of, and some of the incredible stories that I encountered really give you inspiration, but also give you hope that there are practical step-by-step things you can do to get through a transition. What about when someone, and you talk a lot about this, but like the bottom, like for some people, they need to do a voluntary transition, but does Mm. it, but they don't, you talk a lot about people bottoming out in that. And I guess then you're just, they're just prolonging it, right? At some point the bottom comes. Is that the experience of what you heard from people? We all know those people in our lives who are stuck Is there any way to push people into transition? That's an interesting question. I think that you can push, but I'm not sure you can push them into transition. I I think that we know this. 25% of the stories that I heard, I was shocked, have addiction uh, in some level. Sometimes the person was addicted or the person they're living with had an addiction or the parent had an addiction or a child has an addiction, all sorts of addictions. And I think that we know that you can't you can push someone, but they have to want to go through it. And so what I would say is that I looked at these life quakes. There were voluntary and involuntary ones, right? 47% turned out to be voluntary, which is, wow, people embracing. So a voluntary life transition is you start a venture, you change religions, you change careers, you decide to leave um, an unhappy marriage. 53% were involuntary. So that's a diagnosis. You have an accident. There is a you know, a tornado or a pandemic or whatever it might be. The point is that the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary. You do have to lean in and choose to make the steps and go through the process. And that sense of empowerment, of like agency, of I'm going to take control, I do think that has to come from internal. You can push, 
And I think any of us who are a parent know that. I can push, I can get my kids to do something once or twice, but I can't ultimately internalize it. Anybody right. who's in a marriage knows that. You can not You can recommend that your spouse change, but chances are that your spouse is going to be resistant until they choose to make that change. And I think that you can nudge, you can comfort, you can slap, but ultimately the person has to choose to go into it. And that's ultimately very empowering and ultimately will in- increase the odds that it succeeds. And I guess the point of your book is that we're all, no one's alone and we're all going through some form of this at almost every point of our lives. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Bruce Feiler. For more on his work, pick up a copy of his book, Life is in the Transitions. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.